lesson is from Job, the second chapter, verses 11 through 13. Now when Job's three friends heard of all these troubles that had come upon him, each of them set out from his home. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They met together to go and console and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hopefully, everyone can hear online, and hopefully we're good. So far, so good? Sweet. So, before we start, to borrow from Barbara Brown Taylor, somewhere in this time together, online, may the holy dove cool a little love song in your ear. You are loved, you are loved, you are loved. Whether you're at a point in your story where you can believe that or not. Amen. In this particular season, grief isn't taking turns. Just about everyone I talk to lately is navigating their own losses and juggling how to show up in the world for others too. It's not Job or his friends. We're in real time living out Job and his friends in the various facets of our lives, navigating things we did not plan or want. Life feels a little like a burrito that I keep adding ingredients to, wondering how my own stuff is going to fit and how I'm going to leave space for the way I want to show up for others too. How long until the burrito wrap tears? How much can it hold? I try to leave space for and. Maybe and is like the sour cream that mellows instead of accelerates the spicy burn. I hear your pain and I'm grieving too. Instead of, I hear you, but dot, dot, dot. And is not all, everything won't fit, this I know. Still, and leaves a little room for what I hadn't previously considered. And lets a little more flavor marinate in the crock pot. And maybe that's something to chew on this morning. What's in your burrito? What are you grieving right now and where are you feeling compelled to show up in the world? What ands are you holding that are leaving you feeling stretched beyond your capacity or comfort? So let's look at Job's story, and before we jump into where his friends are showing up, let's rewind a bit. Job wasn't your average person. Told at the beginning of the story that he's got seven sons, three daughters, that's a lot of kids by anybody's measurement. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys. Even by today's standards, that's a lot of livestock. And they also were told that he is blameless and upright and he is innocent. The writers of Job like to hammer us with that point again and again and again. Which, But then, he loses all of it in a day. Kids, camels, sheep, oxen, donkeys, all of it gone. 
and then his health is taken away too. Soars from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. And lest we be tempted to think he deserved his circumstances or something he did was the cause of it, we're clobbered again and again with the fact of Job's innocence, which I'm wondering now if his friends really knew him, how did they miss out on this part of Job, but we'll deal with that later. Let's first deal with what's given to us in chapter 2. And while we readers might be wondering about this intellectual problem of suffering and wondering what in the world God is allowing to happen to Job, which is a real conversation too, just not one I'm diving headfirst in today, we come to the story of Job's friends who are wrestling with a very different question. How will they show up in the midst of their friends' suffering? His friends hear of his troubles, they don't ignore it. We're told little of the friends' backstories, just a little information on where they hail from, which just tells us they were really intentional in gathering as they have some traveling to do in order to find Job and each other. Part of making space for is for, sorry, let's repeat that. Part of making space for community is making space for noticing. Where is it we are called to pay attention and respond? We can't drink constantly from the flood of information of bad news coming our way. We can't hold it all, well, at least I can't, and still function in the way that I want to in the world. But we can choose where we will direct our attention, and we can be really curious about who is getting our attention and why. And even more, we can, with intentionality, redirect our attention where and when it's needed. With great intention, his friends set out to console and comfort Job. Seeing him from a great distance and not even being able to recognize him, they mourned, tearing their robes, throwing dust upon, in the air upon their heads. And I wonder if they're not just mourning the facts of Job's circumstances and those particular losses, but also the loss of who they thought their friend was and would be. And I wonder what that would feel like for Job to move from being the one accustomed to doing for others to being spent and poured out with nothing left to give. But still, his friends showed up. They let the feelings well up, and Job let them come and enter in. Both made choices to be seen and to show up. And outside the Mount Olivet front doors, there's space to grieve. And I invite you to stop by to name your loss and pray, but also to come and note the torn strip of fabric on the wreath and hold space for the grief and laments of others. Showing up matters. The letter, the phone call, the kind word, the meal, the GoFundMe donation, even if it's tiny, it all counts, it all connects us, it reminds us that we are loved and we are not alone. And I know it is hard, especially in this socially distant age, the way we show up might need to be different than the way that we'd prefer. And I'd also note that the way we show up online for each other and the world matters. It's not the only thing that matters, but it still matters. As Angela Gorel reminds us in her book, Always On, every time someone gets online, their choices about what to view, share, post, or express emotion about, what to like, what to get angry at, or share tears about, it matters. When we're using social media, we are constantly and often unconsciously 
answering difficult questions about who should I interact with, when should I speak, when should I be silent, and what should I click? And there's different kinds of silence. Though the trouble with silence, as Kathy Park Hong points out in Minor Feelings, is that silence can't speak up and say why it is silence. And so silence con collects, becomes amplified, takes on a life outside our intentions, in that silence can be misread as indifference, or avoidance, or even shame. And eventually, this silence passes over into forgetting. The gift of the friends in this story is a different kind of silence, of presence. It's the silence of feeling with someone, knowing that words and platitudes can't fix it. It's sitting in the mess and discomfort with Job, and to be honest, what a gift for the friends to have held their own anxieties and fears in check for seven days of silence in order to be present for Job's story. But it's hard to preach a small section of the story when I know it gets bigger and messier and more complicated than what we see right here at the moment. It's fragile knowing that getting it right in this moment doesn't mean getting it right down the road. To hold that we may fail even after starting out so well. And I'd love to say that this communal silent space healed everything and worked some quick miracle, like there was some formula to wave our hands and like Mary Poppins snap a room back into place. Or even that somehow some profane, profound change happened in the characters, that they found some profound meeting that made it all worth it. But that's not what I see that the story offers. Instead, what I have to offer is that perhaps the gift of silent presence, of being seen in community, gives Job the margins to begin lamenting and naming his pain in chapter three. My husband and I welcome tiny humans into our family on occasion, and I don't know what that's like for people that birth children into their own families and bring babies home from the hospital that they have carried for nine months. But in our case of fostering, our littles don't cry at first. It takes about one to three days of little itty bitty huffs and puffs when they have a need and responding to those with a diaper change, with a feeding, with a snuggle. And then slowly, they learn to cry. The, the kiddos cry to communicate only after they trust that my husband and I will show up to meet their needs. Laments, too, involve a certain amount of trust. We cry out when we trust someone will hear and respond. It's an act of hope that we will be heard. But once Job starts speaking, like so many have experienced, his words are met with challenge, and his friends turn the tables back on him, asking him what thing he did to deserve all that's happening. While we are who are reading along are protesting with Job, but he didn't deserve it. And perhaps pain spoken by others is harder to hold than pain that is silent. Once words start entering the picture, holding space for others to share gets heavy. When our own stories well up and we want to speak our experiences or fix things, and it's really tempting to hold Job so very close, to only look in the moments where people in my life got it wrong, like Job's friends will. That feels better than asking, where have I been like one of Job's friends after he laments? 
And if I'm honest, sometimes when people are sharing their pain, I'm listening for their mistakes, not their story, whether I want to say anything about this line of thought or not. Why? Because I want pain to be preventable and for life to feel less precarious, less fraught with uncertainty, and also sometimes because I would like to be good, right, and innocent, even if I am not. But if there's something they did to bring on that scenario, I can avoid it for me and my family, and I get the bonus cookie of self-righteousness, which makes the world for me just a bit calmer, more predictable, and safe. There's a major trade-off. It also means diminished capacity for community and connection. And because I like to know these things, and because maybe we can leave each other some breadcrumbs or some torn burrito bits to find our way home, when you're at your limits for compassion, what practices help you make more space for empathy or its kin curiosity? What gives you margins to be present to someone else's pain? And particularly, I'd love to know what in this season is working for you to be compassionate and empathetic right now? What's the tangible thing that you do? Would you leave those in the comments? For me in this season, it's reading, particularly prioritizing authors who are not white, like me. It's a ridiculous amount of journaling, and it's finding a way to write blessings when I would rather point judging fingers at people. But back to judging Job's friends. They will make mistakes in the coming chapters, and yet, still here they got something good. Still here there is a moment where his friends got something right. Even if it all comes off the rails later, maybe there's a gift of and here. They didn't do everything wrong, and God help us make space for and in our stories and in the stories of others. There is space for and in your story. You do not need to be perfect for love or welcome to find you. Getting it wrong later or even right now doesn't mean failure is all there is or will be in your story. And if you're feeling like Job, looking on the wreckage of your former life and former self, you're not alone. You are loved. And if you're feeling like Job's friends, navigating how to show up and be present to someone else's story, juggling your own anxiety and discomfort with the pain you're witnessing, or the way it's expressed, you're not alone. You are loved. And if you're balancing on the tightrope of your own losses and being present to other stories too, you too are not alone. You are loved. When you speak your deepest fears and hurts, may you find yourself held within the embrace of compassionate community. May your pain be acknowledged and tended with loving care. And may you find that God still holds and meets you here, right here in this moment that is bigger than you can handle and the work that is beyond your current capabilities. And as you recognize the companions who've made space and welcomed you as you are, amen.